Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. And this week, I am privileged and honoured to have Reg Brown with us, and our topic will be the Insurance Museum. Reg is a Lloyd's legend, having been the active underwriter at RE Brown and others, Syndicate 702, what is now Markel, for 17 years up to the year 2000. He is a former chairman of Lloyd's Underwriters Non-Marine Association Limited, and in 1994-95, he was the president of the Insurance Institute of London. In October 1999, he was elected president of the Chartered Insurance Institute for a year, and he has also been a president of the British Insurance Law Association. He is a freeman of the City of London and is a member of the Worshipful Company of Insurers. As if that isn't enough, he is president of the London Phoenix Orchestra, which used to be the Insurance Orchestra, and finally, he is chairman of the Insurance Museum, which is why he is on the podcast today. However, as if to prove that no man is perfect, he supports Arsenal, which comes as a very grave personal disappointment. So, Reg, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. And, Reg, I, I cannot tell you how honoured I am to, to have you on our little podcast. Um, and if, if truth be told, I don't really know where to begin because there are so many things that we could talk about. But um, first and foremost... Could you just tell us how you became involved in insurance? Was it an obvious choice for you as you were growing up, or did you just fall into it? Uh, it, it certainly wasn't an obvious choice, and like most people, I fell into it by, by accident. And my problem was that uh, at secondary school, I was a hopeless student. So when I left school, I had no idea what I wanted to be, what sort of career I wanted to follow. I thought at one time I'd like to be a journalist, but my uncle on the Daily Telegraph said I'd have to learn shorthand if I was going to pursue that career. And I was fed up with learning. I didn't want to do that. So I then thought, well, accountancy sounds posh. Uh, that would be a nice thing to do. Um, but, but then somebody told me I'd have to study five nights a week for five years and pass exams. So that put me off again. Um, <laughs> so I went along to, uh, in those days, we had a, a youth employment officer. So I trotted along to the youth employment officer. Uh, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, no idea. You tell me. So um, he then said, I've got a job here in insurance. How about insurance? And I thought, I don't know anything about insurance. Um I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, and um, he sent me, I went to Fleet Street, got my first pinstripe suit off the peg, went along to the interview in Cannon Street at the Reliance Fire, uh, and uh, I got the job. Little did I know, however, uh, that I would spend the next eight years <laughs> studying for my fellowship exams at the Chartered Insurance Institute and then a further five years uh, reading law as an external student at London University. Uh, uh, little did I know that at the time. <laughs> so you, you ended up studying even though you had tried to avoid it in the first place. 
I ended up studying for the next 13 years. Well, it didn't do you any harm, did it, Reg? Let's, let's face it. Well, it, it, it did me uh, a, lot, a lot of good, yeah, a lot of good. So you first moved into Lloyd's in, in 1976. Could you give us a, a, a portrait of what Lloyd's was like back then? I'd been in the business for, for 17 years by the time I went into Lloyd's, so I, I wasn't a novice, uh, and I did know something about the, uh, the insurance business. I was already a fellow of the Charter Insurance Institute. But what? Um, so, but getting into Lloyd's was exciting, uh, as exciting as I expected it to be. I knew it would be exciting, and so it was. But there are a few things that amazed me. I mean, what, firstly, was the total lack of understanding of the law of agency, and things like baby syndicates horrified me. And I remember one Lloyd's broker asked me. Would I underwrite the professional indemnity insurance of the Malawi subsidiary of theirs? It got a quote from the leading underwriter. I agreed to support it. And away he went. And he came back, brimming with smile and confidence, saying, here you are, sir, I've got you the order. I didn't think the price was enough, so I put the premium up, and I've got you an order on a higher premium. And I looked at him in amazement. I said, do you understand what you've done for your client, your subsidiary company? Uh, and you're ripping them off. I mean, how? Uh, and he, had, he thought he was doing a good job. I was amazed and horrified. The other thing that I remember was the appalling lack of record keeping, because in my day, I always had a file on every risk, copy of the proposal form and the submission and all that on a file. Lloyd's underwriters didn't keep any records at all, apart from a little slip of white paper, uh, which had a very brief summary of the risk, name, address, and, and, and things like that, and annual um, renewal notices and premiums and things like that, but very little information. Uh, and the thing that I was working for at the time had a, a system, uh, NE, uh, at the end of their reference number. And I said to my colleague, what does NE mean? And he said, oh, not entered, which means we haven't kept a record of anything. <laughs> we leave the broker to keep the record. And that, that horrified me. Um, but a complete lack of contract law. The brokers had no idea that their clients were entering into a contract uh, and, and so on. But it was... Um, Amazing for me, studying law at the time, to discover these things. But it's very much like a club, very much like a club. Yeah, but, but plenty of room for improvement, though. Plenty of room for improvement, as Lloyd's learnt to its cost. Uh, and when, you know, baby syndicates and Cameron Webb and all those things that came to, to, to light, uh, it, it, was, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. Yeah, yeah. And we'll come on to some of the traumas of Lloyd's in a moment. But you became a deputy underwriter in 1977 and then underwriter of Syndicate 702 in 1984. And so what, just to help people understand, what are the responsibilities that you have as the main underwriter? Well, your first responsibility is, I mean, when you have a duty to the names to manage your affairs uh, professionally and properly and in their best interests. But you have to decide what are your skills and what are you good at and what should the syndicate be underwriting. 
Uh, and the first thing for me was my predecessor, who'd been the underwriter for seven years, uh, was a, a man who uh, loved Italy, was married to an Italian lady, uh, he spoke Italian perfectly, and was on the phone. He didn't like the life of Lloyd, a Lloyd's underwriter particularly much. And he was on the phone to his mates in Italy pretty nearly all day, every day, yeah, speaking in Italian. And so we had a reasonable sized book of business, Italian business, including things like kidnap and ransom. Um, when I took over, um, I realized immediately that I did not have the skills that he had. I didn't speak the language. Uh, I didn't know I'd succeeded him as chairman of Lloyd's Italian subcommittee. <laughs> so I used to go to Italy and I'd tell them, uh, I, I don't want to do your business. So I started to ditch the Italian account uh, as quickly as I could. Uh, and I, I started to concentrate on the business that I thought I was skillful at, my knowledge of law, my interest in professional indemnity insurance, directors and officers liability insurance, legal expenses insurance, mostly UK. Uh, that, that's uh, what um, I decided that the mainstay of the uh, syndicate would be. But we were a general non-marine syndicate, so I had a fire underwriter, I had a, a liability underwriter, uh, and so on. So we concentrated on the business we knew. And a, a very personal question, this, but, but how did you feel the first time that you saw you know, the syndicate called R.E. Brown and others? It must, be, it must be a bizarre feeling to actually see your name at the top of the syndicate. Well, uh, I won't hide the fact that I felt a sense of pride, um, a bit like the pride I felt when I got my exams and got letters behind my name. You, you achieved something, you got there. But I'd spent seven years as the deputy, and uh, when the underwriter decided he, he had enough and he wanted to go and live in Italy, it wasn't a surprise to me that um, I, I would succeed him to the job. Um, he was a younger man than me, so I'd almost given up the idea that I'd ever get to be underwriter of the syndicate, but, but I did achieve it. Yeah, excellent. And, and you've already mentioned some of the, uh, the, the traumas that uh, Lloyds went through in the, I suppose, 1980s and 1990s. I, I mean, particularly with asbestosis and the LMX spiral and the names litigation. Um, could you talk us through that and what impact it had on, on your syndicate, if at all? Well, fortunately, the syndicate wasn't old enough. We only started life in, in 1977. Uh, and uh, we didn't have a, a really long tail account. So asbestosis, um, which is mainly an American uh, phenomenon, didn't affect us at all. Uh, in fact, in the early days of trying to attract names to join the syndicate, um, they were advised by their members' agents to join some of these long-standing syndicates with big reserves, uh, and which proved not to be big enough. Uh, and, you know, new boys like us, without those big reserves, were seen as, as not such a, a good syndicate to join. Uh, but that all changed with uh, with the disasters, uh, and um, uh, but fortunately we were not involved in the asbestos crisis, and and uh, so uh, my syndicate did have a little bit of LMX business. It wasn't enormous, uh, so that that didn't cause us too much of a disaster. 
But what did cause me a lot of anguish and, and the syndicate uh, a lot of uh, expense was that um, in those days it was compulsory for members of managing agents to have professional indemnity insurance. People outside of Lloyd's wouldn't underwrite it, so it had to be written within Lloyd's. So we as a professional indemnity syndicate did our bit. Not only that, uh, I, uh, in my wisdom, wrote uh, what was called the Estate Protection Plan, which was an idea that um, because of the unlimited liability uh, deceased names had, um, somehow the uh, trustees wanted to close their estates, which they were able to do if there was an Estate Protection Plan written by Lloyd's underwriters to, to assume their liabilities. So that seemed a good idea at the time. I wrote that. Uh, and I also wrote the members' personal stop loss. And what I then discovered that when members started suing their members' agents and we were having claims on the stop loss policy, we were inheriting the right of the names to sue his agent. Uh, and when the deceased names, <laughs> estates were, were taken over, uh, we were again suing ourselves. Uh, and it was a complete circular nightmare. Um, and I couldn't at that time see how Lloyd's was going to survive. I seriously thought we, we were going to go bust. Uh, what saved my sanity was um, in about May of, of whenever it was, uh, I went on a, a narrowboat holiday, the first ever narrowboat holiday I'd ever taken. Uh, a week cruising the uh, the backwaters of Northamptonshire up to Warwickshire and, and so on, racing along at four miles an hour in the sunshine, I came back refreshed and, and uh, full of optimism. So uh, I'm grateful that for that narrowboat holiday and long it remains in my memory. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing like a narrowboat holiday. Highly recommended to anyone out there who's, who's never done one. I recommend it. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you were obviously around when uh, the, the reforms of Lloyd's were um, put in place and the introduction of corporate money. Um, I mean, is that the main change that you've seen at Lloyd's during your time there? I think certainly the change of the capital base at Lloyd's uh, has been, I think, the most significant change. Uh, it, it was um, uh, one of my great mates, uh, Brian Kellett, who persuaded the council at Lloyd's at the time to get council's opinion as to whether we could allow uh, corporate capital at Lloyd's, uh, because it had to be personal, they all thought. But anyway, we, we eventually got corporate capital in. Uh, and, um, I mean, the personal names were resigning like uh, in droves and um, many were, were going bust and, and so on. So um, at that time, you know, we had something like 30,000-odd individual names and over 400 syndicates. Well, the Lloyd's disaster reduced that rapidly uh, and... Um, uh, you know, the individual names, that, there's still individual names at Lloyd's, but they're the high premium group now. There's just a, two or three hundred of them, I think. And the rest is corporate capital. The other thing for me uh, that, that changed uh, quite a lot is that the constant battle between uh, Lloyd's underwriters who wanted more good quality business and the Lloyd's brokers who had a monopoly 
on, on access to lawyers. But they were worldwide businesses with no particular responsibility to place their business in Lloyd's. Uh, Murray Lawrence did at one stage say, what is the role of a Lloyd's broker? And he uh, answered that question by saying, the role of a Lloyd's broker is to show his business in Lloyd's, but only place his business in Lloyd's if it's in his client's best interest to do so. And I remember that phrase very well. I quoted it a lot in my talks and speeches and so on. But we hadn't got the ability to cope with all of the business that the Lloyds brokers had worldwide. The problem I felt is that they were um, not duty-bound to show us any business in return for their monopoly. And a lot of them didn't. And if you went abroad, a lot of the... Um, Going abroad and, and in, in this country, the uh, regional offices of Lloyd's Brokers felt no particular loyalty to, to Lloyd's at all. Uh, their loyalty was to their local market. So what I did in 1990, I opened an office in Leeds and uh, I started to write regional business, which I was comfortable with. I knew a lot of the local brokers, regional brokers. Uh, my first years, 17 years in the business have been dealing with those brokers. So I uh, opened an office in Leeds, then Manchester, Birmingham, Rygate, and those offices are still open uh, under Markel. So I got something right. <laughs> I think you got lots right, Rich, lots right. Anyway, all of this chat, fascinating though it is, is, is merely an introduction to the topic that we're actually meant to be talking about. And, and in my introduction to you, I listed all the, the various roles that you, you've taken up over the years, that the, the president of this and, and the chairman of that. Uh, and it looks as though you've always been the sort of person who has, has wanted to give something back to the profession, back, back to insurance. Um, and, and here we are, e even in your retirement, um, in 2019, you became the chairman of the Insurance Museum uh, and at a time when, when many people, I think it's fair to say, in your position uh, would have chosen to put their feet up for well-earned rest. Um, you've now thrown yourself into a, into a brand new project. So please could you talk to us about the Insurance Museum and, and why you think it's so important? I've always felt lucky. Uh, I've enjoyed my uh, career enormously. I never had that Monday morning feeling. The only Monday morning feeling I had was, whoopee, I've got to go to work. Uh, and so I've always felt sorry for those who don't want to go to work. Uh, and I've loved every minute of it. Uh, and I, I felt when I retired in the year 2000 that I, I really had to give something back. I, I, I've been so lucky. So I, I got in touch with Lloyd's in the community, who I knew were running a, a, a scheme where market people went to uh, schools in Hackney to teach the kids to read. Now, as a Hackney schoolboy, I imagined that's what they would ask me to do. Uh, but they didn't. They sent me to Tarhamis College, where the, the students were uh, somewhat older. Uh, and I began mentoring older students at the, at the college. But in, in the course of my mentoring, I used to bring kids into the city. I'd, I'd take them to the Bank of England Museum, fabulous museum in the city of London, uh, and I'd have to drag them out. Uh, it was so entertaining. So, you know, I'd take them on a tour of Lloyd's and, and things like that. 
So I used to come out of that Bank of England Museum feeling very jealous indeed that we insurers hadn't got one. And I thought, why haven't we got one? So I decided that we needed to have a museum like the Bank of England Museum, but the word museum uh, in some quarters doesn't have a right ring to it. But world-class visitor centre does. So that is our ultimate objective is to have a world-class I mean, in many ways, Reg, it's it's remarkable that there isn't one already. I mean, there are obviously kind of various things scattered around. So there's a bit in the Chartered Insurance Institute and, and there's a bit in uh, in Lloyd's as well, of course. Um, but given the, you know, the, the absolute centrality of insurance to society, nothing in society would exist without insurance. Um, and insurers enables so much of, of the progress that, that we that we see in civilization around us. It, it's just remarkable that there isn't one. I, I understand that there is there is one museum in Krakow in in Poland, um, but I guess that probably isn't hugely accessible to the vast majority of people. Several people uh, have complained to me. I should have done this twenty years ago. Uh, and why haven't we got one already? Uh, and some say I thought we had. Well, the problem with the uh, artifacts and the heritage items at the Chartered Insurance Institute, they had a museum on the second floor, but it wasn't open to the public. There, there's a lot of stuff at Lloyd's not open to the public. There's a lot of stuff at uh, Aviva in, in uh, Surrey House in Norwich, uh, underground. Never sees the light of day. So, yes, there's one in Krakow. We believe there's one in Madrid in the offices of Matfrey. Uh, there's one in Munich, which is run by Allianz, uh, and China. There are two in China, we think. There's one in Milan. We believe there's one opened up in Argentina. So um, we're in touch at the moment with a, a one who want to open up in Portugal. So with all these, why isn't there one in, in London? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're hoping to to sort out. And 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 in terms of museum, what is it intended to be focused on insurance in in Britain in the UK, or is it effectively the whole history of insurance from you know it starting northern Italy and then going through uh, kind of Antwerp and Amsterdam and 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 worldwide, or, or is it limited to the UK? Well, uh, I mean, we're going to start. I mean, we are a UK uh, institution, if you like, and we want yeah. to represent the UK insurance community. But because they write international business across the world, so we're not going to ignore the world. But the UK insurance industry is so vast that it's going to be uh, difficult enough to represent the entirety of the industry. If you think about livestock insurance, you think about... Um, uh, you know, satellite insurance. I mean, there's the Titanic. There's, there's life and pensions. I often say, how many people know that the insurance companies in this country pay more in pensions per day than the government does? No, that's that's amazing fact. That's a sweeping statement. I mean, one guy said to me, "Who the hell's interested in that?" And I thought, "Well, you ought to be because you're in the business, and your children ought to be." because of their financial education, uh, that, that they can't rely on the government always to pay their attention for them. Absolutely. And, and history is 
it, it provides context for everything that we do. We, we, we know where we fit within the bigger picture if, if we know the history of, 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 of where insurance comes from and its ups and downs and Cuthbert Heath. I mean, everybody in Lloyd should, should be able to rattle off a whole series of facts about Cuthbert Heath. The challenge for the curator, because I won't be deciding these things, uh, the challenge for the curator will be what does he feature? Uh, and I can see, you know, for example, the man from the Prue. I mean, what a fabulous story that is, because the man from the Prue, if you think about it, were very often the early social workers, because they'd be round knocking on the door once a week, uh, and the family would be asking them all sorts of questions about all sorts of things, and the man from the Prue would very often help them out in, in ways that were way beyond collecting his his tenpence a week or his tuppence a week or whatever it was. Uh, and, you know, yeah. I, I hope we can feature the man from the Prue with his umbrella and his bowler hat at some point in time. Although it's an EC3, we're going to cover the entire country. Uh, and I've also been in touch with uh, somebody you will remember, Stephen Merritt. Yeah. Stephen's been in touch and he said, you know, he did that. They funded the rescue of two lost satellites. And Stephen went over to America uh, and conducted the attempt to re rescue these satellites. And they did. They succeeded. Uh, and absolutely amazing story. And Stephen says he's still got some of the artifacts from that. Whether we'll put it in the museum or whether we get the chance to, the curator decides on that. I don't know. But we can run features on this, the Great Fire of London, uh, on Titanic, all sorts of things. There's so many stories and so many people of interest that we want to, to cover. We've already started videoing, uh, interviewing people on video uh, before they meet their maker. Uh, and there are quite a few people around that we want to capture before it gets too old. It, it sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. Let's get down to the nitty gritty, Reg. How much money do you need to achieve this vision and how can people and companies contribute? Well, we're about to uh, launch our first fundraising attempt on the 7th of September. And we'll run it for three months, 7th of September, 7th of December. It's to try and test the market's willingness to support the venture. Uh, we did that feasibility study in 2019 when we got resounding support from everybody we spoke to. I always said the moment of truth will come when we ask for money. Uh, well, we now reached the moment of truth, uh, and we're going to start asking them for money. Uh, we've got a number of donation tiers. We're asking at the moment for pledges because we want to be sure uh, before we get too carried away with it that we can actually raise enough money. And we, we need about three million, uh, and we need to make sure we can last for three or four years at that. So that's what we're asking for. Companies can pledge uh, anything from a million pounds to um, 5,000. We're going to ask, um, you know, the, the usual funds and charities and, and uh, other places, and we have realistic hopes that we have sites on one donor who may well give us a million pounds. Wow, that would be amazing. And we've got um, some premises already identified. Uh, and the idea at the moment is that for sort of five or six years, 
we, we run an 8,500 square foot museum. Uh, it will be a museum and, and uh, it'll teach us what sells, what's interesting, what's not, what the school children want to come and see. Uh, it's going to be interactive and they're going to go away impressed by it. And we want to learn and make sure that we've got another site where we're talking to the planners and the developers. And it's a site in, uh, which is, uh, I mean, obviously not, not yet demolished. It's on there now, but it's, a, it's, a, it's going to have a fifth floor area of 20,000 square feet with a couple of balconies overlooking Leadenhall Street. Wow, that would be fantastic. And that would be good for corporate entertaining, uh, you know, uh, and, and so on. So at the moment, we've got the charity up and running. We're about to open a bank account. We couldn't take any money at the moment because we haven't got a bank account to put it in. But we're going to start all that rolling seriously on the 7th of September. Press release I agreed this morning, and um, we're going to go for it. Excellent. So the chief executives across the country can expect a phone call. Can they, Rich? Can they, they can. The trade associations are all supporting us. And so the trade associations will be sending out a message. And, you know, the ABI very kindly held a balcony affair for us last September. And, you know, the trade association has been extremely supportive. They're all behind it. The question is, are the members behind it? We've got several supporters at the moment. You know, Aviva have been supporting us, GS, AXA, uh, Aon, Marsh, Willis. I mean, you know, the big players, uh, some of the big players are there, but we need a lot more. No doubt we need a lot more. And we have only just touched the surface. Excellent. Well, I wish you all the very, very best with that. And before we before we leave, I just have to talk about, was it Deltiology? I believe that you're a Deltiologist. Is that right? Could, could you talk us through that? I think you grabbed your dictionary then when you uh, uh, looked at that. Yes, I'm a Deltiologist. I put that on my CV because it gives people something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but what is it, Reg? What is it? It is, it is collect, a collector of picture postcards, which are just over 100 years old. And in the early days, from about 1885 to about the First World War, there were over 4 million postcards posted every day. Uh, and there are lots of postcards available still in, in collectors' possessions. Posted at 10 o'clock, dear Gladys, see you in Harrods for tea at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And Gladys would get that in time to get there. They the early texting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and your postcard collection, is it, is it linked to insurance or, or you just collect anything? It is entire, entirely insurance. Uh, and of course, don't forget, we've got talking about friendly societies, the burial societies. I mean, all my cards uh, relate to the, the insurance business. Wow. And how many do you have? Probably about six or 7,000. So if, if nothing else, there'll be at least something to go in the insurance museum when it opens. Oh, well, and, you know, the one I collected this morning, it came on the post this morning. Uh, it's a real photograph postcard. I mean, the yeah, members can't see it. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks fantastic. So where is that then? Is that in London? That's Eagle House. Oh, wow. Okay. Manchester. That's before the Eagle became Eagle Star. Yeah. No, that, that lost a lot on the podcast. It has to be said, Reg. You showing me a postcard, but uh, but 
we enjoyed it. The two of us enjoyed it, and that's the key thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the people that I enjoy most. It's the uh, the branch managers and and so on. And sometimes because I got a lot of books here, history books and insurance companies. I sometimes find them in my, I've got a photograph or a postcard of them and I find them in the history book of the insurance company. That, that's good, good stuff. That thrills me. Oh, that's great. Very bit of fun. It's harmless fun. <laughs> so to conclude, Reg, um, if, if a young person came to you uh, and asked for your advice uh, about whether they should enter the insurance market, and based on all of your years of experience, what, what bit of advice would you give them? Uh, I would say most definitely, uh, you, you know, whatever your interests, whatever your direction in life you want to go, I mean, if you're interested in medicine, if you're interested in animals, there's a role for you in insurance, so most definitely. Um, I, I, uh, I always regarded myself as a slow learner and a late developer. Uh, and most of the uh, undergraduates I come across and I mentor and so they're much brighter and smarter than I ever was. And if I could do it, a slow learner, late developer can do what I did in the insurance business, uh, they can too. Uh, and what I didn't realize in those very early days when I passed, got the interview with uh, the Reliance Fire and the Youth Employment Officer said, what about insurance? I didn't know I was taking a risk. And I spent my entire life as a risk taker. I had no idea. I didn't see it like that. But as I say, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Reg, that was such an honour. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, I hope all the listeners to this podcast will, will have enjoyed that half as much as I did. Thank you so much indeed. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts and, of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes. Thank you.